Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Robert McKinley. It's August 18th, 2022. We're at Norris McKinley Vineyard in Newburgh. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get you rolling is why wine? Um, so, he's uh, growing up in Southern California. Uh, wine wasn't really a thing for me. Um, I grew up in Huntington Beach. Was pretty much a surfer kid, hung out on the beach, playing beach volleyball to being in the water most of the summers. Um, geez, maybe junior year in high school, uh, the folks approached me and said, hey, uh, without sightseeing, we decided to buy a property here in Newburgh, Oregon, um, which was pretty shocking for me because I don't even think at that point I visited Oregon. Uh, it wasn't anything on my radar. Uh, I remember our first trips up to this area uh, this property we're on now was a big hazelnut orchard, uh, pretty common in the early 2000s. Um, so uh, staying at the house, looking out the window, there wasn't much to see because it was such a mature hazelnut orchard. Um, but through times of coming up here, visiting, uh, whenever we had weekends off or summers in high school, um, slowly watching this vineyard develop over time. Um, so. Uh, property was bought in 2005, also on the same kind of pattern and trajectory of Ribbon Ridge becoming an AVA, which was pretty cool. Um, so 2005 was the first year of that, and so also our first year here um, in Oregon. So that was pretty unique for me, and coming up here and learning as much as I can. Uh, then uh, we really broke ground on planting this vineyard in 2007. Um, so, you know, starting to see some of those first wines in uh, 2009, 2008. And at that time, uh, my neighbor here, uh, James Frey at Tresadum was making the wines. Um, so kind of with the whole James thing, he was friends with, uh, well, still is friends with my parents. Um, and we went on this property together. So the really exposure rate, I think I was a senior in high school um, and uh, we'd come up here and James so happened to be having a club release party um, or uh, wine shipments, I can't really remember, but I just remember being used as a labor in the back, making boxes and packing shipments and um, thinking to myself like, wow, this is a really neat industry, I think. Um, James's energy and the whole team that most of them are still there uh, having some of their first release wines hit the market it was really cool to kind of see that well this is a business uh, of making alcohol but also selling it and um, that's kind of when his brand started taking off uh, coming back home I'm like okay well let's take a look what schools in the nation can I look at that focus on wine and viticulture um, so started looking around. I mean, I didn't put all my eggs in that basket. I kind of applied everywhere because that's how college works. Um, <laughs> but uh, landing, uh, getting accepted into Cal Poly San Luis Obispo was uh, a big step into that. Uh, 
a very competitive program at the time as it wasn't quite a department yet. It was um, a major, but uh, not big enough. And believe it or not, a lot of kids wanted to learn how to make wine at the time. So I was accepted into uh, Cal Poly's uh, fruit science program. Um, which made me think a lot. It was either that or uh, I think uh, my final other choice was University of Arizona and that would have been a very different path from the agricultural side of fruit science. Um, but uh, looked into that and saw a lot of overlap. Uh, if it wasn't citrus trees or uh, I remember being avocado based uh, horticulture, um, <laughs> Oddly enough, grapes fall into fruit. So a lot of classes were viticulture classes. So I thought, if anything, I can overlap and learn how things were grown. Um, maybe graduate with an understanding of plants and that can push me to uh, um, the whole wine and bit side. Uh, so I started freshman year at Cal Poly, uh, Central Coast, right there in the middle. I mean, it's the beach, it's beautiful, right out in the back doors, Edna Valley. Uh, 40 minutes north here in Paso Robles, 40 minutes south here in Santa Barbara. Um, so really not a bad place to be. Um, I think I remember, it was a little bit of a culture shock being a kid from the beach and then learning plants. Um, I think uh, my first lab, uh, I remember being on campus and you have to walk everywhere, try to figure out where your classes were. And my first class ever was in the horticulture unit, crops unit. Um, and I didn't know how, realize how far that was. So I'm wearing flip-flops, board shorts, a t-shirt, and I'm backpacking it. And I walked about maybe three miles from my first class. And um, instantly we were there, hands in the dirt, packing uh, and uh, planting. Uh, I don't remember what plants we were working with, but um, just remembering like, oh man, what did I get myself into? Uh, this is college, okay. Uh, laboratory you know uh, once I got into more regular classes it's felt normal but starting with a lab is uh, something Cal Poly really focuses on is uh, learn by doing so most of our classes were laboratory based so we would actually do that process which was really cool I'm more of a physical and visual learner so that helped me a lot versus uh, I would say tests and all that uh, handwritten <laughs> exams I mean we still had that but the labs were important um, and then after a year of that, um, I basically just started taking nothing but wine classes. Uh, I don't think uh, professors really loved that, but um, you know, I had a few sit downs with people and they're like, hey, you're not following your, your uh, written cur curriculum, uh, what's up? And I'm just like, well, I'm into wine. So uh, I think enough visits with teachers and uh, my annoyance of not taking the correct classes, they finally were like, fine, like we'll let this kid into the wine program. Uh, and I was just so happy to be there. I think I took any opportunity to do anything that was presented in front of me with uh, that revolved around wine. Um, mm -hmm. So if that was uh, jobs that came up or uh, any exposure of uh, internships, I uh, started in the summers working in Edna Valley at. Uh, Shamasol Vineyards and I was doing a lot of hospitality work on the weekends so I can work on the weekends and a little bit during the week and go to class um, and then as I worked my way through that summer work turned into the Cal Poly Experimental Vineyard uh, where we did Pinot, Syrah, 
Chardonnay, and that was all managed by students. Um, so learning that kind of process through the student vineyard, you know, it wasn't the perfectly beautiful vineyard, so it was really nice to kind of see like when you're pruning it as a kid and um, doing leaf pulling and hedging all by you know yourselves is. Uh, Sometimes it looks great, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and then that would then be forwarded to other students to make it into wine. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, I was really concentrating on wine business. Uh, I, uh, that, that, that's like a subdivision of what your major can be. Uh, I uh, felt what would be there forever if I started with the Enology and Viticulture program. So uh, uh, wine business was my five-year program out of Cal Poly. Uh, I wish I could have stayed longer, but uh, five years was already enough. Um, but I'm really happy I did that now because it's one of the hardest things to do in this industry is uh, now I'm finding making wine is maybe a little bit easier than selling it, uh, or at least I enjoy doing it more, but sales is so difficult. Um, but uh, that ended up uh, kind of building that in and out of tasting rooms. Um, I needed an internship, so my first real summer internship was in Paso Robles uh, at a winery called Castoro, which a lot of us in the industry would use the term a, a tank farm. Uh, very big, um, Operation. I think it was something just with their brand alone, not counting Custom Crush. I think it was like 60,000 cases or something like that. Um, so I was doing a lot of cellar work there, and unfortunately someone got hurt on the bottling line section, and they're like, well, we run four bottling line trucks, and uh, we're going to need you to be the forklift guy for the summer, um, which wasn't exactly what I wanted to do for trying to become a winemaker as an internship. Uh, but so incredibly valuable. Um, being able to drive a forklift is something that I tell anyone who's trying to get into production, if you could set your part, yourself apart on a forklift right off the get-go, it really opens so much more opportunities when you go through these other jobs in your career. Um, and it was definitely something that you saw later. Mm -hmm. It didn't make sense at the beginning, but um, in the amount of mistakes of dropping stuff, I was not perfect, um, but... Uh, yeah, Paso in the summer is a fun, you know, wishing for 115 degrees because you can go home for OSHA rules. It always, it always stayed at 112, but, um, you know, that's something, you know, you're sweating, driving forklifts. And um, then, you know, around August before school starts, you start seeing fruit trucks come in. So I wouldn't say that was my full first vintage. Um, prep work for bottling and finishing bottling, uh, very important, but starting in the last cycle of the wine process, I really wanted to kind of get into, um, you know, seeing the whole process of crushing grapes and doing that. Um, so then I uh, come back and after doing Castoro and vineyard work and still jumping in and out of Shamasol uh, and Inda Valley, uh, um, we had a gal from Switzerland come in and present and she was like, hey, we're putting together this awesome suburb program in the following summer. Um, we're picking kids to go out and we're uh, putting together US, United States, Switzerland, and Australia, and we're all gonna tour Europe. And uh, if you can write a paper and why you deserve to do this. Um, and uh, I just thought that was the coolest thing. So being able to really come in and um, see European viticulture and what really surprised me was the amount of people who didn't sign up um, so that was like it was a sure in and uh, 
awesome. I don't know if it was the price tag on it, but um, I felt like it was really affordable and something um, to look forward to. And uh, I can't remember if it was a senior summer or junior summer. Uh, I got the opportunity to go out to Switzerland. So we spent time at Sean John right outside of um, Geneva. And um, we got to pretty much go to classes out there. And then we hopped on a tour bus and did Northern Italy, uh, Austria, Hungary, Slovenia, Germany. Um, and that led to seeing places like the University of Geisenheim, uh, you know, stuff like that. And uh, being outside of Vienna and going to Wachau and just seeing really cool stuff, which kind of ended up being a lot of the ways I make wine now. Uh, that was my probably my biggest European exposure. Um, but also just being with a bunch of students who really love what's happening and letting, uh, you know, these winemakers from Italy or whatnot open their doors and show us how they make wine was really valuable. Um, you know, seeing the European Swiss school where they pull students from Burgundy from all over Europe because it's so close and centralized. Um, most of their families own chateaus or, you know, uh, but uh, some not. Uh, but then also getting students from Charles Stewart down in uh, Australia. So it's, when you put that many people internationally in a building, it's really something special. Um, and just different outlooks in winemaking. Um, so that all process ended. I flew back, went back to school. Um, and then uh, the following summer, they're like, we want to come to the United States. So I was like, well, I've done this, so I'll help tour them around. So it was kind of me returning the favor to them. And um, I was like a camp counselor, pretty much. <laughs> uh, we did all of California. We even came up to Oregon and visited uh, some of the I don't know where we went. It was Domaine Serene, you know, all the top wineries back then and uh, well, still now. Um, and even went out to Walla Walla and ended in Seattle. So it was really kind of cool then showing off your town and uh, a little bit more driving in the United States. So I think that people got a little bit more antsy than uh, Europe. You're like, you're there. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I got that opportunity and um, uh, you know, I think um, my timeline there is all over the place, but uh, somewhere in that time, I can't remember if it was junior, super senior year, um, I uh, came up here and did my first like real full vintage uh, next door with James at Tresatum. And um, that was something very cool and uh, kind of stars aligning when you're coming back from Europe and then uh, you get a phone call that. Uh, He's like, uh, Jacques Ladier from Louis Jadot is going to be making wine here too. So, I mean, lining it up within a year was so cool. Coming back from Europe and seeing how wine's made and then getting the burgundy side of things that you didn't really get to see. And then also seeing, um, you know, James's touch on things. Um, you know, it was such a valuable vintage with James focusing so much on tasting. And I think at a young age, when you're tasting so many wines, it really builds a palate, which is really important. Um, I would say coming back from Europe, seeing all those Eastern European styles, uh, some very good, some not, but it's education. And um, every morning it felt like we had wines in front of us and we got to taste through um, Ribbon Ridge, GM Hill, uh, Dundee, you know, and we lined them all up and I don't think there's any better way to learn. Um, and then we go out to work and we tried to do that quite a bit and you know I think that's something uh, not a lot of work experiences give you so I really um, 
thank James for that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, then, you know, I go back to school again. So, you know, my timeline's all over the place with school, but uh, with the five years, I think my, uh, I did as much as I possibly could um, and get to go back to the Central Coast and then uh, bridged it to my first long, really work job, which I went up to Sonoma, California. Um, and I uh, worked for a company called William Salium that's been around for a while and a uh, classical producer and um, for Pinot Noir. So my focus when I really first started was, you know, I'm here. I have this vineyard being planted up here at the time. I didn't know I'd be in a position to take it over later. So, but I'm like, if I'm going to end in Oregon, I really want to do as much Pinot Noir as I can starting in Oregon to then let's check out Sonoma. Um, and. Uh, Different production for sure. Uh, very, uh, you know, focused on sanitation, uh, but very lot split, splitting up lots of vineyard designates, um, but extremely valuable in uh, building cellar practices, um, understanding kind of, you know, what to do, not to do in a larger scale production. Lots of forklift driving where that kind of came in handy. Um, and I was there for, geez, about a year. And as long as they would keep me, uh, the goal was always bridging internships together. Um, you know, I never wanted to go back home. I don't think I ever went home during college. Uh, it was like, where could I go next was always the big thing. Um, you know, after staying through blending, um, I think it was like, uh, geez, we're racking in November. and. I was presented with a really cool opportunity that, to write a paper and go into San Francisco if you get invited to sit down at a table and apply for the Doug Weiser uh, scholarship, which is a, well, was a young winemaker uh, who went to New Zealand and worked at a craggy range. And um, he ran the operation there, but unfortunately passed away in a kite surfing accident. Uh, so each year now they end up taking a U.S. winemaker and funding their uh, trip to New Zealand. Uh, and I was like, hey man, if I can get a free trip to New Zealand, I'm all about it. Um, so I uh, wrote, took a long time to write this essay and got invited for in-person interview in San Francisco. I remember, I think we were in the financial district or somewhere and going up a skyscraper and sitting down at a table explaining why I wanted to go to New Zealand it felt odd. Um, and I remember being so sick that day too, like I butchered that interview. Uh, so I uh, ended up not getting it uh, and was so disappointed. And I think uh, we ended up going into uh, Christmas around that time. And um, uh, at that point, the winery kind of slowed down and I was at home. I think it was Christmas Eve. I get an email uh, from the winemaker at uh, Craggy Range and he's like, hey man, it didn't work out, but do you still want to come in uh, May or whenever harvest was? And <laughs> hands down, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, so having the opportunity to still go, uh, but paying out of my pocket, I didn't care. Uh, so that was my first international experience, um, which really kind of opened the door to a lot of things. Um, you know, being in New Zealand and being at such a winery that has a reach of making Cabernet, uh, Syrahs, Pinot Noir, uh, Riesling to Gris, uh, and most importantly, if you go to New Zealand, you're making a lot of Sauvignon Blanc. I think that's something you really need to focus on and uh, understanding before you leave. You better have a good idea how to make some uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but uh, 
you know, which is becoming more popular here in Oregon. But um, we, uh, yeah, Matt was a great winemaker and he's no longer works there, but um, I really enjoyed uh, how Matt Stafford set up experimental things or reasons why. Um, so we would look at things like this ferment has whole cluster, this one doesn't. Um, how does that taste and why? Uh, why would you do that? Does it work with this vineyard? Um, two tanks next to each other. We inoculated this one, but went native ferment on this one. What do you prefer? Um, what works for your liking? Um, filtration, one filtered, one not filtered. So seeing side by side things like that and really when you're doing about a thousand plus tons, it's really easy to kind of break off and have all these experiments. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that was the first job where you always have people who work vintage or harvest and um, they're doing it with the like of doing a harvest, but sometimes like it's their second or third thing, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, but that was the first job where it was everyone on the team was so passionate about wine. I don't think we ever stopped if that was going back to our house we all lived in. It was like blind tastings every night, like let's keep on talking wine, um, which is extremely valuable when you start getting into those situations of learning as fast as possible. Um, and uh, you know, this is where forklift kind of came into uh, play was that because I was strong on it, they're like, you're gonna be swing shift, which was kind of a catch 22, but um, uh, you're gonna do a week during daytime shift and then you'll get a day off and then transfer to night shift. So, you know, you kind of get, start getting loopy at the end of harvest, but so valuable because um, so many people didn't see what was happening at night versus what was happening. So when you see the full process, I mean, standing there at two in the morning, running your sixth press load of Sauvignon Blanc uh, or uh, doing pump overs for X amount of time by yourself, it kind of builds some character, I feel like that. but. Um, <laughs> Uh, then um, at the time I rented a car with a friend and we ended up just traveling. Uh, I almost mimicked the itinerary that they gave the scholarship winner, uh, but I'm like, we're just gonna kind of follow and go to certain areas. So that was going up to Auckland Bay of Islands and seeing some Kimu River Chardonnay, which was very interesting. I didn't think you can make wine up in Auckland area and then going, you know, seeing the sites along the way too. Um, and then coming back down and seeing Martinborough to Marlborough to Central Otago. So really jumping around and kind of exploring the country and, and whatever winemakers would open their door, which usually they would, and we'd kind of walk through cellars, taste wines, uh, you know, be at Felton Road and we're tasting Rieslings and guessing how much grams of sugar are in it, which is so super fun at the time. I had no idea, um, which kind of, I got some work to do. Um, <laughs> So, you know, the idea is like, how do you better yourself? And that was a big thing with the goal of also, maybe someday I can come back to Oregon and really work with this property. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, at the time too, I guess with all these internships, I never really told anyone that, hey, I have, might have this opportunity in Oregon. Uh, my parents bought this place. You know, I really wanted to work on my own and, um, have nothing given to me. I don't know why I felt that way when I was younger, but I'm like, I want to really work, work and uh, be like everyone else who's working just as hard. Uh, I didn't want any special treatment. Um, 
in any way. I, it still gave me the opportunities to, you know, really make things work. And right after Craggy, I came back, kind of floated around Sonoma. I was like looking for work and ended up coming back here to work for James again. And um, I was happy enough to, that he let me, uh, you know, come back for round two. Um, and at that point, you know, you're kind of sitting here like, do I stay in Oregon? Uh, I like it here. Or do I want to see more? Um, so doing a repeat vintage is always great because you can kind of, at the time, Jacques was still there as well. So you've learned so much, you come back and it's kind of like, oh, wow, okay, I didn't notice that first time around, um, which is always a good experience. Or even... Um, winemakers evolved too so seeing kind of their new processes over the last couple of years was really uh, beneficial and um yeah so then at that point you know I'd, walking from here to there is a pretty fun vintage and um then uh i was like well i'm not ready to stop yet so i ended up um, applying to a winery well lots of wineries in australia um and finally, a friend put me in contact with Torbrick Vineyards in the Barossa Valley. Um, you know, at that time, I was like, man, I just know there's big wines in Australia, um, which was pretty naive of me to think that. Um, I wasn't sure that I really wanted to go. I'm like, well, it's not Pinot Noir. Um, it'd be like kind of my first vintage without Pinot Noir. Uh, but I felt that was pretty valuable to look at something else. Um, so lots of Syrah or Syrahs and Roussan and Marsan, all the Rhone varieties. Um, uh, got an email back and they're like, yeah, well, if brush fires don't take over, um, we're, we're going to still have harvest. Um, so just emailing back and forth with my fingers crossed. Um, and I remember getting that email like, where a go when I was up here working for James and I was so excited about that. And I think that was the first break I've had since college. Um, where I just had to wait. I went back home and waited a couple months before going to Australia. I, I had a plan, but uh, I think both me and my parents, we were all buttonheads, like I'll get a job, job, but no one's gonna hire me for two months or whatever it was, three months. Um, but anyway, hopped on the plane and went to Australia. And I mean, talk about such a cool uh, experience. They're so far advanced in education and uh, learning and the industry there is so developed it's been around forever especially in the Barossa um, most vineyards we worked with were about a hundred plus years old so pretty incredible to walk through a vineyard and go man what was happening a hundred years ago um, they most vineyards are planted on sand so um, Floxra doesn't really do well in those conditions so uh, these own rooted vines got to really you know, hang out and uh, at that point when you're 100 years old, there's not a lot of volume coming off the vine, but um, still really impressive. Um, and uh, that vintage uh, where New Zealand was mostly American based, uh, I think there was like eight Americans. I was the only American. So it was really fun kind of being in the flip scenario where no one else was like you. Uh, we had two uh, guys from Barolo uh, who ran their own family estates um, and uh, two French and uh, a guy from Austria and you know all their parents and stuff own these chateaus and I just remember sitting there like well I'm kind of own something but like <laughs> I haven't talked about it um, but we'll uh, 
Um, I'll just be the U.S. kid, so it was fun. Um, and you know, that once again, all people were very passionate about wine. Um, I think what really opened my eyes with Torbrick was it was so hands off where, you know, you're used to making, you know, being clean, being, I mean, I wouldn't say they weren't not clean, but, um, you know, using gas, all these things in winemaking were, were not inhibiting where we would then top barrels where it was like once in two years, where it's just like, if you told someone that in Oregon, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> um, but so hands off and it was such a fun vintage because there wasn't a lot of that stressing about different things with oxidation and um, you just kind of put it there and it was there. Um, and they're racking in, you know, high scores and stuff, which is funny because, you know, it's, uh, they're, oh, we got 98 points, 100 points, you know, points to me or whatever, but it's just funny being in a winery that probably did less than everyone else, but because of the old vines and their history, it just worked. Um, and uh, so it's, and they're getting high scores, which is really funny to me. Um, but the, also those nights there were incredible with a bunch of winemakers. You know, we go out to Adelaide, which is very similar to Portland. And, um, you know, you're sitting there with, when you have all these different nationalities and we would go to a wine shop and be like, go pick something out. And that was really cool. Most people were trying to, you know, show off their country um, or, uh, producers they really enjoyed. I mean, of course, the Austrian guys grabbing a Gruner, and then you have like uh, um, the guys from Barolo putting Barolo down, and um, really cool experience to learn. Um, you know, and then they start talking about the terroir and all these things you probably would never get. Um, it was almost like one of these interviews at a, a table in the of a bunch of winemakers. Uh, so I was there for about a year. I, I let them uh, keep me as long as they wanted. Uh, after harvest, uh, I was luckily their viticulture, Ni Nigel Bleski, who's been there, uh, new to Torbrook, but been in the Barossa Valley for a long time and very well-known viticulturist, was willing to take me to all the vineyards. So I got to do a lot of the pruning and stuff like that and old vines. And there's so much that goes to that and taking care of history um you know each pruning gets so important um in keeping these vines alive uh so then walking through all the vineyards was very cool um he you know even having dinner with his family and uh you know then coming back in the morning and uh training his young vines but then we like kind of graduated once he felt comfortable with me and then we'll go to his older vines and work on his older vines and um really neat experience and uh I think I came back with an accent too, which is really funny. It's like an Aussie accent. I didn't notice it, but uh, when you're there for that long, it just that it just starts to happen. Um, and then uh, I came back and lined up a vintage in Santa Barbara, and um, that was kind of almost like home away from home. I was coming back to the Central Coast. Um, at that point, I was really interested in Syrah and uh, Cabernet. It was uh, I worked for Honada in the Hill. Um, Matt Dees is a winemaker down there uh, who does some really impressive things. Uh, his assistant Drew Pickering as well is incredible. Um, so learning from them was great. You know, you're back in another vintage where you're doing literally every varietal, which was really cool, sparkling to Cabernet and their Honada brands out of the San Inez Valley um, in Buellton uh, and uh, Ballard Canyon was more the AVA. 
which is 30 minutes away from the Santa Rita Hills, and then they had vineyards in the Santa Rita Hills, which was all Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and kind of still gave me the Pinot itch, but got to play with the bigger varietals as well. Um, and uh, those guys are great, Matt. Uh, you know, you're not an intern there, you're a young winemaker, and they treated you so well. Uh, each winemaker got uh, a ferment, so you can pick any varietal you wanted, and he said, you know, you can do whatever you want to it, which I thought was so cool. Um, he's like, if anything, you know, if it's not great, we'll just blend it away. Uh, it doesn't matter. So I had the opportunity with working with some Sanford and Benedict fruit, which is a very old vineyard in the Santa Rita Hills. Um, so I made Pinot, of course. Uh, that was the goal back then, and it's been a while since I got to play with a Pinot, pretty much. Um, a lot of things I would have done different, but uh, a great learning experience. I'm sure it just got blended away with uh, something that I would never know, but um, it was uh, a good experience nonetheless. And um, we, uh, uh, you know, that one, you know, it was only a five-year, uh, excuse me, five-month internship, four-month internship, but. Um, right after then, uh, those guys are still like some of my closest friends and um, uh, I think working with the Cabernet side and those guys being uh, really cutting their teeth in Napa Valley, um, instead of waiting around for a job in Santa Barbara because it's a bunch of small industry and it's not as easy to get into places, um, it'd be a lot of downtime. I'm like, man, I'm a lot, there's a lot of work in Napa Valley, so I uh, packed up my car and I don't even think I went down south to Huntington at that point. I'm like, I need to just get up there and keep on working. So kind of putted around Napa Valley for a while until um, uh, I found the opportunity to work with the winery uh, Vineyard 29 uh, out of St. Helena. Uh, and they've been there for a long time. They're right north of St. Helena on Vineyard, on Vineyard 29, on Highway 29. Um, and uh, obviously Cabernets and uh, Sauvignon Blanc and uh, their goal is to produce you know high-end Cabernet uh, so I, I kind of I was a vintage enologist there which was great um, that led to whenever there was downtimes I go work in their tasting room and was back into sales so I'd be in downtown Napa doing sales and then when it was time to bottle or go start doing you know enologist work again I'd drive up the valley to St. Helena which was about an hour and uh, get back to work up there um, that was 2017. Um, we also ended up purchasing Shea Fruit, which was pretty fun. I mean, that was a big swing for me and being an enologist is I still kind of had the Oregon touch, um, which was fun. I mean, we didn't get a lot of it, but it was cool to make Oregon Pinot in Napa Valley. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, geez, it's, Vintage in Napa is a long extended period. So you start in August and we're working until like Thanksgiving, maybe longer. We're Oregon, we're here pretty compressed harvest where, you know, it's a, maybe for a month of really hard work and then we start to die off a little bit, um, which is nice. Uh, Napa, you, you do get worn out. Um, I can't remember in 17, but like halfway through the vintage, wildfires broke out. Um, I don't think Napa really talks about it, but that was a pretty crazy experience where you lose complete power. Um, I remember they called us into the winery, you're driving up uh, 29, and I remember being the only person on the road, stoplights weren't working. Um, you know, some, you're driving past vineyards where they got crews out there trying to pick as much as they can, um, which is probably a big no-no now. Um, you know, this is before, uh, 
some of the earlier fires in kind of on the west coast here um, at that point we didn't really know about masks and 95s or anything to protect you so um, you know that was pretty rough all the inhalants and um, you know it was like a different planet when you're driving down 29 too it's like both hillsides you have atlas peak on one side and um geez the mayakamas mountains and heading towards santa rosa both on fire so you're just seeing these lit up bridges um no one on the roads flashing lights smoke uh, remember we got to the winery i don't even know why we even went up there that day uh opening the doors and you know you have all these ferments in tank um fruit still on the vine so you're right there kind of seeing all aspects of what happens with smoke uh, no power so you know it's like leave the tanks closed uh keep the barrel caves tight and then it was like okay go home guys like we, we can't do anything today um we'll let you know when power is restored um so we went home i remember just sitting in my house because you couldn't really do anything um everyone was evacuating um i remember looking at my phone and going man like literally every highway out of napa is on fire so like i can't leave if i wanted to leave and i'm closest i'm downtown by the river so i felt pretty safe close to water but you know it's just looking at your phone what's going to happen what's going to happen um and uh remember got the call uh to come back up i i did one day of processing and um you know uh the winemaker would have us uh, spray down the Cabernet with a hose as it came across like the sorting table. And, you know, uh, he's a Davis guy, Keith Emerson, and he's up here quite a bit, uh, really good dude. And he's just like, I'm like, so like, does this work? And, and no, I don't think so, but it makes me feel better. So, you know, it's like seeing those kind of strategies of like how to handle smoke taint was extremely valuable. Um, you know, then I'm barreling down barrels in the cave and, um, you know, uh, then learning, taking care of yourself because I think there was a day there where um, the smoke got to me so bad I didn't end up going to work the next day. I felt so bad. I felt like I was leaving the troops, but um, I just got so sick from like, I, I'm guessing smoke inhalants, uh, you know, not wearing a mask, not um, taking care of yourself, not drinking enough water. Um, it was about 24 hours of downtime, but then uh, I was able to get back in the car and get back to work. I, I always hate that when you can't help the team out. Um, but, you know, looking forward, I think it was a good experience to see how this, how bad this stuff is really for you. Um, and, uh, you know, then accessing the damages once it was done, um, going through tanks and tasting tanks where it's like, this was fermenting and it's completely smoke tainted now, or, um, this tank's fine at this stage, which was really interesting. And then once the fruit's coming on fine, two year then evaluating. So being an enologist in that position was really valuable because most of the time you're in the lab and you have winemakers coming in and talking about these situations. Like I didn't know what to do, but just being around people at that time was uh, valuable. And Napa Valley is so, um, they have their fingers on the pulse with UC Davis being right there. So um, when you have the then, providing information from some of the professors was really interesting. Um, but I stuck out there working there through all the way through Christmas time. And um, then, you know, my lease was coming up at the new year and it just felt right after finally settling down somewhere for a year. Um, man, it's time to come to Oregon. Um, so in 2018, I moved back up here full time. Uh, 
took a while finding jobs, uh, floated around the valley for a while, working in tasting rooms, uh, doing vintage. Uh, my longest stint was at Willa Kenzie. Uh, ended up working in the hospitality program um, for about a year and a half, which was extremely valuable. Um, kind of getting back into the sales side of things. I mean, I wouldn't be able to run the company I run now without seeing that, um, uh, how, you know, that how to sell the customers, how to talk to people, how to, I mean, it's just so valuable being behind the bar, especially a company with that much history um, and being kind of under the Jackson family umbrella was extremely valuable. Um, and uh, I guess before that I was at Jay Christopher as well for a harvest. Um, you know, just did a four month stint there. Um, but the whole time being in Oregon once I was in 18, our fruit contract ended. Um, Van Duzer used to farm our site, so it was James Frey, and then uh, Van Duzer stepped in in around 2015. So the contract was coming to an end, and um, the opportunity here in Oregon started presenting itself where it was like, hey, we can actually retrofit this old barn on the property. Um, so years later, uh, contracts and, and timing and uh, everything kind of worked out. Um, so I'm here now, um, went through a large construction project, but um, getting this building fit for production and tasting and um, boots on the ground in the vineyard every day. I got to walk my dog. Um, it's a crazy little guy, but uh, <laughs> then uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm hyper focused on a, about a 12 and a half acre vineyard, um, which is good and bad, I guess. I don't know. Uh, you can really hone in on the little things. Each year I'm figuring something out. Um, we're moving into our 15th leaf, so 15 years of growth, which is pretty awesome for Riesling and Pinot. Um, I like to say we're kind of getting into the old vine section. Um, I mean, there's older vineyards in this, but you know, when you start kind of getting into the late teens, early 20s, um, is uh, where you start getting more, I think, terroir out of the vineyard versus uh, more of the bright fruit characteristics you would in a younger vineyard. Um, but yeah, each year you learn something new and being able to go through that full process of years of jumping around, I mean, I'm sure I, my timeline was mixed up because even I still get confused uh, where I was or what I did. Uh, I might have forgot a few places as well, but um, the goal was always learning as much as you can, asking why. Um, you know, uh, you can always do something, but I think it's very important to ask the question why you're doing something. Um, things might seem tedious, but there's a reason why. Um, I think not following trends is important too. There's always new things in the wine industry. Um, you know, jumping on a trend just because um, I think can be foolish sometimes. I've learned that the hard way because sometimes maybe the vineyard doesn't need that, but um, just because someone's doing it and it works for them doesn't mean it necessarily should work for you, um, which is a hard lesson to learn. And um, yeah, and reading, uh, I think is important. Uh, the wine industry is so humbling where it's like, you know, uh, you can really get humbled. Uh, you don't, you can never know everything, which I love. Each year is like, you come to work and I mean, each year, each year and day, you're learning something new. Um, and a different curveball is being thrown at you each year. Um, if you can kind of be humbled by what's going on around you, um, I think it's important. Never stop learning. Keep on working. Um, 
So, you know, any opportunity or a chance to better yourself, I, I think is huge, especially in Oregon. There's so many opportunities to really grow. Um, but yeah, now I'm here running a company. Uh, 2020 was the first vintage, uh, which was fun. Um, just like, uh, it was like a repeat of 2017. Uh, I felt like I was in the brush fires in Australia. It was uh, fires in Napa and then fires in, uh, you know, here in Oregon, um, or I guess the whole West Coast at that point. Um, so yeah, I uh, um, at that point was deep in a construction project. Um, you know, building a winery is never easy within itself, but then, um, you know, making wine in a half-built, you know, well, say three, half-built facility uh, with no windows or doors or anything in a smoke vintage was interesting. Um, you know, there wasn't much containment, but um, he, I think that experience in Napa really gave me perspective on smoke taint, how to taste it, how to maybe, you know, there's still, still so much unknowns, um, but maybe how to mediate it. Um, you know, there's, it's tough. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, but uh, I ended up bottling most of the vintage, uh, Riesling and Pinot. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's the best example of the work, but I'm really proud of those wines. Um, I'm selling them today. Uh, 21s are looking really promising, um, but, uh, you know, putting 20s in front of people is sales is difficult. It's not easy, but you know, if you keep on pushing, and I think the product that's out there uh, is pretty great. Um, you know, so many people have their different stories and tough situations. Uh, you know, I was, we farm our vineyard, put our own cash into our vineyard. I felt like it was uh, the right move. You know, you're already paid for farming the whole year in September. You know. We're almost at the finish line. Either, you know, if you let it hang, you never know if it was ever going to be good. Uh, everyone's in their own situation, but that was ours. So we had all the equipment. We were ready to process. We were ready to, you know, get the company rolling. So um, I thought, hey, we can lease ferment everything, figure out how it goes, and if it's, you know, unpalatable or unsellable, we'll just not. We'll just stop. Um, and I never really got to that point. Uh, I think with the vineyard, it, I don't know if it was the degree of ripeness um, where it was at when the fires broke. I don't know uh, if it's this bowl we're sitting in, um, but they came out um, uniquely the vintage, uh, of course, but uh, it came out really well. And I'm, I'm uh, happy to sell those in the valley because there's not many who have the opportunity mm -hmm. to uh, because their degree of was much worse. Or, um, they just felt like it wasn't, it's such a tough vintage, so everyone's got their own thing and opinion, but uh, uh, I'm moving forward with it, and um, 21s look great, so that was the second year, and almost completed with everything, so I think this year is going to be my first year in a uh, fully retrofitted building, or barn, it's still a barn in my eyes, um, this is a uh, uh, a lot of history in this building, so it's exciting to finally see uh, everything pan out. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, so Norris Wines is our brand. Vineyard is Norris McKinley, and we focus strictly on Riesling and Pinot right now. Um, we have, geez, how many clones? Five, six cl Pinot clones. Um, predominantly Cory, which is pretty crazy. Um, 
how that worked out. Um, so I make a lot of Corey, and then two different clones of Riesling, clone nine and clone 12. Uh, nine being Geisenheim, which is cool because I've been there, which makes me always kind of laugh. Um, and then Vainsville as well, which was fun to work with because I saw so much of it in Switzerland. Um, but yeah, full circle kind of process. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, here we are now. I mean, everyone's story is different, but now I'm producing wine at a pretty large scale. And I'm my one man team at the moment, um, you know, hopefully that changes here pretty soon. Uh, you know, you get to what you can and um, just keep your head down and keep on going. Um, so I host tastings on the weekends or whenever people book. Um, I'm making the wine. Uh, I'm now, when I can get to restaurants, I'm knocking on doors trying to sell the wine. So it's pretty life consuming right now, but um, I feel like this property deserves it. And, um, you know, I'm lucky enough things, you know, worked out where I lined up to where I'm able to do this. Um, and uh, the folks in, um, and James at the time both found the properties. So going in on that together was really forward thinking and um, it's exciting to be here on with a bunch of, geez, I, world-class winemakers on the ridge. I mean, it's, it's pretty eye-opening uh, being, geez, I'm 31 and I am uh, moving into being on the ridge for a long time. So uh, it's exciting, um, you know, with neighbors and I'm sure you've interviewed most of them and uh, all incredible. And uh, I'm just, my story's just starting. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at here in uh, the Oregon wine industry. Uh, but what I really love is people are so um, willing to help. Uh, you know, I can make phone calls now. Most people I've done business with over the short years have become extremely good friends. Um, we call each other all the time if we have issues with the wine or sell selling. Uh, I wouldn't say I've done business with a lot of people over the last three years, but uh, the select few are some of my really good friends, which is cool. And that's kind of how this industry works in Oregon, where it's pretty inclusive. Um, and I feel like uh, if you want to grow, this is the place to be. Um, we're still growing as an industry. Uh, I, I'd say like places like um, Northern California is great, but the growth has already happened. I think if, you, if my advice to young winemakers would be come to Oregon, I think there's more opportunity if you start from the ground up here um, and new brands popping up like crazy. I can't keep up with it and I'm one of them. So. And, uh, Tell me about it. Yeah, right? It's hard to keep track and you're over here probably uh, trying to track them down for an interview. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, that's my story. Um, it's a good story. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I, I talked the entire time. Um, I have I have more questions for you. So there's more yeah. talk, more, oh, talk, please, more talking yeah. to come. So you, uh, even though you mentioned you're you're still young, you're still 31. You you've been a lot of places. Yeah. You've worked a lot of places. You've seen a lot of regions, a lot of right. wineries. Give me an idea of comparison and where where Oregon kind of fits globally in your mind and wine and both sort of quality yeah. and, and all of that. So. Um, I think, uh, you know, I use this one a lot, uh, Kramer over, Eric Kramer over at Willow Kenzie brought it to my attention that like, we're one of the smallest regions in the United States, but we're producing some of the highest quality wines through reviews and scores and just uh, recognition within the United States. Um, I think that's super cool. Um, comparatively with quality, I think each year we're becoming better and better and better. And um, I think, 
uh, you know, most areas and I've done most of the West Coast. It's funny seeing friends coming up here to buy fruit now. Um, I think it's the cat, you know, things are out of the bag now where um, you're realizing you can get um, some really good quality for your price. Um, and then, you know, looking at, uh, I'm, you know, we, each year is so different with heat and all that, but being able to kind of deal with warmer vintages and colder vintages. And I think that's where comparing a lot of the regions kind of, um, that was the goal to go and be able to handle um, all the curveballs that mother nature gives you. Um, I mean, without these hot summers, like we wouldn't make wine in Oregon. It's the degree and the long sunlight, you know, at in the middle of the peak summers until 10 p.m. Without that, we wouldn't be making wine in Oregon. So, um, which adds a totally different, I mean, just the Pinots here are world-class and, um, you know, I have to be the champion of Riesling as well. So I, I think Riesling's United States-wise are extremely powerful in Oregon. Um, and then obviously the world-class Chardonnay is being made here, uh, you know, it's funny if I'm trying to impress people with a U.S. wine, I, I usually gravitate towards Oregon. So it's a really unique place to be making wine. If I answered that fully to the, you mentioned Pinot Noir from the beginning as being an interest, and I and kind of you kind of like you mentioned kind of an end goal of being in Oregon making Pinot. Mm -hmm. So tell me about getting to know Pinot and and what 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 excite what has excited you about it as you've worked with it over the years. Ah, uh, Pinot. Um, it's a love, I don't want to say hate relationship, but it's such a difficult grape to grow. Um, it, in the vineyard, it's tough. Um, in the cellar, it's tough. Um, if mistakes happen, it's harder to really mediate those. Um, whereas like Syrah or Cabernet, like I love making those wines. It's a totally different process, but you can really beat those up. Like if something happens, you can really take care of it in a different way where Pinot's so transparent. Um, and it's especially here in Oregon, uh, it speaks to the vintage. Uh, each year is so wildly different, um, which I love. It's not linear like some of the other varietals. I mean, I, I love Syrah as well, but um, I don't think I'll ever dive into that rabbit hole up here in Oregon. But um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I think because it's so unforgiving it's, um, and challenging, it's really hard to make really excellent Pinot, and so many of us are doing it well here, which is pretty incredible. You mentioned earlier that you were working alongside winemakers and realizing they were evolving from year to year. Uh, so tell me about your evolution as a winemaker. What, what are the biggest sort of strides for you or, or biggest sort of benchmarks as you look back? Yeah. Think, things you've handled that you were excited about being able to handle or decisions you made that turned out well? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, over the years, it's like, it's funny when you're young in the industry, you feel like you know a lot more than you really do. Um, so like being humbled a couple of times was really awesome. Um, and then like as you start doing things on your own uh the stakes are high so um room or wiggle room for uh air becomes less and less uh you know you really don't want to make those mistakes but sometimes when mistake you learn a lot you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your uh your successes but um i think the benchmark for me was when taking over the vineyard and really learning kind of what's here um trying to make the best decisions for that. And then um, 
you know, a lot of people get their jobs as winemakers or anywhere in the cellar and already completed buildings, not designed by them, not, um, which I think is incredibly difficult going through and building a functional winery. Uh, there's so much that goes into it from how are you, how's your affluent system going to work, you know, things like that, like brown water, uh, how's it going to drain, um, you know, electrical, what kind of power are you bringing in, does it work with this equipment, um, you know, and that was a huge growth for me, like I can honestly say everything in this building, I can, I don't know, rebuild's the right word, but I, I can really figure out what's going on with it um, to where like, most people don't see that. Uh, it's a hard thing to really explain, but, um, and then, uh, you know, uh, each year there's always something on the winemaking side you're going to learn. I mean, 20, the fires, uh, 21 hot summers. And then, um, and I, you know, it's, how are you going to deal with it? Uh, it's not like for me, it's like, you can't really get caught and go, Oh, you know, the vintage is ruined or, uh, you know, it's, it's how you're going to handle it. It's like almost a game for me where it's like, yeah, you're playing a card game and that's your hand for the year. How are you going to make that your best situation that you have? Um, and then this year we had some frost. Um, what are you going to do differently in the vineyard to handle that? Um, you know, I think it's, you try not to get caught in the thought of we've always done it this way. I think that's comes back to my point earlier where, you know, you really have to question why you're doing something. Um, because as winemakers, it's like there's a little bit of, um, I don't know, comfortability and being uh, consistent. So um, I think really challenging yourself to be, do something different is really important. Um, and sometimes that's when you start entering into scary ground. Um, <laughs> but it either works out or it doesn't, and then you learn from it. So uh, um, that's been a lot of the eye-opening uh, experiences over especially I'd say I grew the most since 18 to now um, when you're doing absolutely everything yeah going back to an earlier question we talked about all the all the, obviously all the places you've been places people you've worked with mm -hmm. obviously you saw a lot of styles of winemaking a lot yeah. of sort of philosophies of winemaking so tell me about developing your own and at what point you felt like you had sort of a preferred style method methodology yeah. behind your wine um, you know, in New Zealand, cool climate, uh, I felt like was pretty linear with what we do here. Santa Barbara as well. Um, stylistically, I mean, I like to make, uh, you know, pretty focused wines. Um, I'm trying to really show the vintage each year. Um, good concentration, color, if I can really advocate that vintage in a bottle, I'm pretty proud. Um, I'm still learning a lot of my styles with this new vineyard um, and really each year kind of shows different aspects. Uh, I feel like 21 was a big aha as 20 was kind of a tough year to really evaluate a vineyard, um, but um, really focusing on like clones and where it goes. Uh, my first year here, I, I did, well, I guess 21, I did a lot of whole cluster and playing around with that. Um, I like wines made that way, but um, I think um, after 21, I've learned some things. I probably, the vineyard doesn't need as much of it, so I should probably dial that back a little bit, but I wouldn't have known if I didn't try it. Uh, it's a lot of trialing, um, uh, not on a massive scale, but if you can each year play with different things, maybe just focus on one thing and 
Um, if you learn something from that, you can apply it and maybe pick a different thing to look at each year. So, I mean, each year uh, you're getting better. Uh, it just, uh, lots of note taking. Um, but yeah, I, I, and stylistically, I mean, Australia didn't really fall into, it's a tough one. Um, I think if anything, I learned about Riesling in the Clare Valley, which was important. Um, and that was just me going off on weekends, trying to discover something. Um, but, uh, and then geez, Riesling here too. I mean, it's really just uh, figuring it out. I think the Swiss trip, uh, I got a lot of my stylistic stuff with Riesling uh, in Austria and kind of that Eastern Europe style, um, long elevage and uh, aging periods and wood, uh, a lot of Austrian oak. Uh, it's just something I've kind of really enjoyed and then maybe more of the stainless side you would see in the Clare Valley. Um, but then Pinot, it's like, it's so organ based. I mean, there's so many things you can do with reds. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, each year it's, it's just like uh, stylistically, I'm still trying to figure out a lot of things, but uh, as what this would be the third vintage, um, but yeah, each experience gives you a different window to look into and really kind of evaluate that back to that question why. Mm -hmm. um, but that's why I love wine because there's no right or wrong answers. It's a really an expression of you as a winemaker and what you like to show as kind of a, that's the art of the finished product. Um, if I answer that fully. <laughs> So you mentioned the vineyard and now kind of being engaged with it, focused on it full time. So, so tell me about the vineyard here. What's what what's unique about it, and what what have you learned about it, and what is still to learn? Oh uh, yeah. Um, so planted in 07, uh, it was planted by Results Partners. Um, so when you look at it, the spacing is very 2007, uh, four by seven, um, where you're seeing a little bit tighter spacing as we uh, evolve a little bit. Uh, I really like it. I think it's a great way to farm. Um, so we're spaced as historical organ, I would say, more classical organ, so not so much high density, but um, planted like something you'd see in the earlier years. Um, we're, like I said, in our 15th year, so seeing some of these old vines mature is pretty impressive. Um, uh, like the other one is Cory. Um, I mean, that's the largest block on this property, which is uh, uncommon. So figuring that clone out has been really interesting and what it goes well with. I'm still on that quest, I feel like. Um, and then Dijon, the 667s, Vainville, um, we have a lot of 115 and um, figuring those things out and what works well, um, you know, uh, barrel programs, stuff like that. But each block puts off a different thing. Like our, the top of the vineyard, 115 is very dark fruited, which is odd versus what I've noticed that a different block 115, it's not far away from each other. It's gotta be a different clone, but that shows a lot more of the red spectrum, which is so strange. Um, Cause they was planted at the same time and I'm sure the plant material came on the same truck. Um, and then um, Riesling's been fun. Um, clone nine is, very cool. Um, that enters more of like a pineapple realm for me. Um, if you're talking flavors and aromatics, uh, where clone 12 is more of stone fruit. So really kind of diving into that. And I think with the vines age, both these 
Riesling and Pinot really start showing off. Each year it kind of enters a different realm and as these vineyards get older um, and you really take care of them and uh, you know the goal is like each year how do we make sure these things can stay in the ground a little bit longer? Um, are they being pruned correctly? Are they, you know, uh, you know, uh, spray programs, all that kind of stuff we look at. Um, but pruning is very important as well. But um, yeah, I mean, it's like a puzzle. It's like, why is this section weaker than this section? Um, you know, this year we did drone flyovers. I had a buddy bring out a drone. So seeing vigor in different areas was eye-opening from the sky. Um, but yeah, it's just trying to, um, because I only have one property, you know, most companies are built off of like, they can show off terroir from different areas. Like we got a vineyard in Dundee, we have Yano yeah, Carlton, we have, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm strictly Ribbon Ridge and I probably will be that way for quite some time, unless something fun comes up or like, I, I really want to show a different terroir. Um, but being strictly a, a state, I feel like is something special. Mm -hmm. So. You mentioned earlier the challenge of, of selling wine. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell me about how that's gone for you so far and uh, kind of as, as the pandemic is lessening here and things are opening up a bit, what are your sort of strategies going forward? Um, yeah, so right now um, we really started selling at the beginning of this year, so not long. Um, a lot of it was web-based. Uh, Picked up a distributor in California who's also a friend, so they've been great. Uh, she works for a full woman company, um, Argo, down in Costa Mesa, which is a really cool, um, I don't know, progressive company, and so it's pretty awesome being a part of their, uh, they carry the Riesling, um, and uh, seeing where it gets placed in California has been cool, because it's like where I grew up. It's like, well, it's at this restaurant now, and it's like, oh, that's like kind of a fingerprint of where I used to go. Um, and then uh, tasting room, like this building we're in now, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, I just started a reservation services, so people are now booking online. Um, I don't see a lot of traffic as I'm pretty new. Um, and then the challenges is I'm, uh, the reasoning uh, does pretty well for 2020, but like with Pinot's, it, it's a little bit more challenging. Um, you know, the first question when people walk in, it's like, well, I was just at this winery and they said it was a very bad vintage and they didn't make anything. And, um, you know, that's their vineyards and their decision. Um, but I'm here pouring strictly 20 Pinot right now. So I'd say that's a, uh, they're priced extremely fair. Um, but that's the hurdle of winning people over. I think my favorite part has been going to restaurants, um, places I don't typically go. And then, you know, the first thing the wine buyer says is like, just to let you know, like, you know, we're not carrying 20s. It's not something we don't like that vintage. And then it's a win when they're buying a couple cases at the end of the tasting. So I love that. Um, will something progress in these wines in the next couple of years? We'll see. Um, but as long as I'm ahead of the game and inform the customer, um, about the vintage, I'm completely transparent. I'm not gonna pretend it didn't happen um, because I think it's kind of part of Oregon history now as our, from what I know of the only fire vintage we've seen in Oregon. Um, so, you know, what happens if we see it again? You know, if, you, if we don't make anything again, how are we ever gonna learn? How are we gonna mediate that? Um, hopefully science, I mean, catches up. Uh, <laughs> like the powerhouses who do a lot of the research, like Davis and Awari and Australia really do some groundbreaking things here so we can really learn. But um, 
you know, that definitely affects sales. Um, I think one thing that is kind of funny is what I'm noticing is a lot of out-of-state people don't, don't even, it doesn't even register what the year was like. Um, you'll tell them, but they'll be like, oh, I had no idea where I think as an industry with us, uh, um, I don't know if it's a bad thing to say, I think we beat ourselves up in Oregon a little bit too much, um, where we know it's bad or we're talking about it too much, but um, just observations, uh, you know, uh, I didn't stick around in Napa long enough to see how that transpired when it was coming out. I don't know if it was more vocal of what happened um, than we were or less reserved, I don't know. Um, but that's the challenges, right? Um, we'll see if frost is something brought up, but there's always gonna be challenges in sales. Uh, people's palates are different, you know. Uh, um, I think this first couple year, this first year has been tough with only three wines. It's like, here's a Riesling, here's two Pinots, and then it's like, all right, we're done. You know, do you wanna go taste some barrels or something? What can I do to keep you entertained for uh, an hour and a half or 45 minutes? Um, but um, I think uh, coming with harvest will slow down again. Uh, start looking at uh, web sales again for the holidays. And then really next year when um, we got a couple more Rieslings in bottle, I think we'll have four um, coming at the new year. Uh, the 20s is still poor. And then maybe start introducing some 21s. We'll have a pretty solid lineup to host people. Um, and then at that point start at, looking at like maybe a club or uh, allocations or we're still trying to figure that out um, so right now I just kind of sell wines as they're easy to ship so uh, three pack six pack 12 pack um, and uh, I'm just calling them allocations until we figure it out um, but that shipping those formats is good for this us as a winery and uh, typically it's more profit uh, you know, better for the wine person buying the wine. Um, shipping costs are usually more friendly at those uh, volumes. But um, so it's been, yeah, trying to figure out kind of how to navigate the 20s has been challenging. But uh, I have to be the the number one supporter because that's uh, that's what I got right now. Um, and the wines are great. So you know, I love what came into bottle and. Uh, um, if it keeps on making restaurant by the glass pours, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, so. Along those kind of same lines, I'm curious what it was like for you having, finally having a bottle with your name on it, putting it, putting it in front of someone. Oh man, it's surreal. Uh, you know, it's all that work and years, um, you know, no time off. I mean, you put a lot of your life on hold doing the traveling. I recommend it, everyone do it, but uh, you know, missing weddings, missing uh, birthdays, missing, it's all kind of part of the game. Uh, the amount of times I've told people, uh, you know, I got harvest or something. Um, so it's, it feels really good. Uh, you know, when you first bottle, there's always that bottle shock period. I think me tasting too many wines during the bottle shock period is always like plays games with your head. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a process. And um, to know you did a majority of that by yourself, uh, is really rewarding. Um, you know, I, I don't bring in intern help at this point. Uh, I'll have friends, like if they're over work or something and wanna do some pump overs late night, like come on by, like uh, take some work off my hands. Um, but for the most part, all the decisions is me. So, you know, when you look at a, something as, 
this was picked. Uh, my, my family comes up for a week uh, or two or whenever we're doing like sorting and processing. But then after that, they kind of d disappear as they have their lives as well. Um, so uh, I get interns for about two weeks maybe and then uh, Riesling's usually on me and uh, as it's later in the season. But um, yeah, there's it's crazy like finally having uh, family names and uh, building a story around uh, I mean, it's always been a topic in the family, like maybe one day we can do this. Um, and uh, it's finally happening, so it's pretty cool. Um, and to see that, you know, all the stars kind of aligned, because uh, a lot of things have to go well for you to get to this position, so. So with all the, with all the travel, with all the experiences, I mean, you, you started down the path and never really went any other direction. Were there, were there ever any, was there any doubt for you? Did you ever have any, time when you thought you didn't want to do wine anymore? Um, I don't think I ever didn't want to do wine. Um, you know, there are times where you're going through the process and um, the amount of interviews being taken, um, they don't always go your way. Um, it takes a lot of time and work sending a lot of emails to people. Um, I, I'm a, you know, firm believer is interview as much as you can, meet people, it'll help down the long run. The amount of things I learned in just sitting at tables for, you know, flattered to even be considered for a position I probably am not qualified for at a younger age, but the things you learn and the questions they ask, and you, it can be used in so many different parts of life, but that's exhausting and I never stopped. It was always looking for what's next. Um, just to keep, you know, if a job ended, it was like, I wanna make sure at that point I'm going somewhere else. Um, you know, I think um, some of the challenging things with th that is like, you know, you're working so hard and trying to go places and, you know, you hear comments like, uh, one was, you never worked for Cap with Cabernet before, like, you know, um, so, you know, that's that's tough for us to commit where I'm sitting here going, well, that's, it's like the same thing, like, you know, or, um, uh, yeah, just really trying to, um, you know, uh, Oregon's super tight, getting, first moving here was tough, getting jobs. Um, you know, there's always questions like, well, you haven't stayed in one place long enough, or in their valid, uh, you know, these are all um, things that you wanna ask in an interview, because you don't wanna hire someone and then they leave, but um, yeah, there's just challenges with all of it. Um, you know, it takes a lot of work to line it up. Um, so it can be pretty down, at times you can feel really down about it, but um, as long as you stick to the angle and you keep on having that passion for all of this, uh, it, it'll come through on the back end um, is what I've learned. But you do go through those ups and downs with anything else in life, so. So you talked a little bit about what's what's ahead for you and for Norris Wines, but tell us a, a, a little bit more about kind of future plans goals you have in mind and maybe some some projects you haven't talked about yet yeah um you know i have uh now i'm really planning on trying to create more skews more different expressions off this property um slowly as this property kind of unveils its hand is really um i only really want to do something if it makes sense but also uh um you know if it's adding another skew of a riesling or adding uh, another Pinot in, um, but the goal is to really kind of capitalize on this vineyard. Um, I haven't fully made um, 
just trying to control volume. I haven't fully made this site yet, so goal-wise, that'd be really awesome um, to pick everything for yourself. Uh, I've sold fruit, um, I've bulked out wine, um, you know, trying to, I think it's important to, I don't really think bulking out wine damages your brand. I think it's important to really, um, you know, it won't have your name on it, but um, I'm trying to really experiment with everything, make the wine myself, and then uh, other companies can use it as they want, but, um, I learned kind of when I'm selling fruit, I don't get that experience with it. So um, really trying to grow from there. Um, projects wise, uh, the hospitality program needs a lot of work. Uh, a lot of this is kind of come in phases. You know, first it was like, get the building built. Okay, now the building's built. All right, how are we gonna make the wine? Or you're doing a lot of it overlaps, but then you know, the wine's done, it's like, okay, who and it's going to help you in the vineyard or there's always like sections and now i'm kind of in that hospitality section um and then you know hopefully get it to operate well enough for where maybe i can take a vacation or something <laughs> so you know that'd be great uh i love what i do but sometimes it's like a uh, stepping away is always refreshing so you have to find some place that's not a wine place, so you wouldn't be tempted. Right, that's the tough one. It's like, and it's like if there's a wine anywhere, then I'm uh, like, I have my favorite wine tasting spot when I go home. It's like I'm like at the beach, you know, and I, I should like go do something outside, but I'm like, I'm gonna go to this tasting. It's like, well, that's not really getting away from work. Um, it's like, but it's Italian wines on Tuesday, you know. Anyway, but or champagne, or you know, it's like, why well, want to do that? Uh, but uh, yeah, I think uh, work-life balance is important, especially when uh, we get so invested with this stuff. Um, learning that slowly. <laughs> so you've talked a bit about your sort of impressions of Oregon so far and of the industry. So tell me about what comes next for Oregon. What what does the industry? What are the sort of the the future look like here? And things you're excited about, maybe things you're fearful of in the Oregon's future? Um, I'm really excited with, uh, you know, the, the quality of wines keep on getting better. Um, you know, new AVAs are popping up. Um, I think that's exciting to really segment some of these larger areas. Um, you know, I think that'll always be a con conflict of, you know, s someone might be in an AVA and not want it and someone might. Um, you know, that's hard for me to say being in the smallest sub-region in Oregon, um, which is cool, but I think like dividing up the shade of mountains is happening. Um, I think that's pretty wise. Uh, coming into seeing different aspects and terroirs, uh, maybe even Yamhill Carlton. I mean, if it scientifically makes sense, the soils are different, all this kind of stuff. But being more focused, um, and then maybe places in different parts of the valley starting to shine. Um, we really don't. I, I mean, there's only so much land that could be planted in Oregon. So I don't see major growth, maybe like uh, south or north, like, but here in like kind of the older side of the Northern Willamette Valley or Aola, you know, you can only really plant 300 feet off the ground or 250, whatever it is to be considered an ABA. Um, well, we're running out of hill space. So um, I don't see massive growth unless like maybe hazelnuts or something kind of moves out. Um, so yeah, I think retaining where we're at now, um, you know, uh, seeing, you know, different companies come in, I think brings a 
uh, awareness to the area, which is good. Um, and maybe funding, maybe um, growth, uh, which I don't think is bad. Um, but uh, yeah, so not really fearful about much. I think we're in, we're still young enough where things are moving in a really good way for even some of us who've been here forever. Um, I, like I'm, we're still relatively new in the you know '07, um, and how much has changed in the mid two thousand like. 2013 to now is crazy. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't get out and taste anymore, but there's so many places I, ha I used to say I knew I've been everywhere. Now I'm like, I haven't been to a lot of places. Uh, so um, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm fearful about anything. You know, hopefully I think we're all, um, I don't know, I think growth's good. And I think it's good for the region and it's good for everyone. Um, I'm sure people would disagree with me, um, but just kind of seeing what happens in other areas. Um, I think it's only positive. And, um, you know, like I said, we're still the smallest out of most of the United States and you still can't plant a lot of areas. So any kind of small recognition, I think is really good. I mean, we already have a powerful awareness worldwide. I mean, I have friends in like Burl Oaks and like, oh, I, I really want some Oregon Pinot. It's like, I'll trade you. I'm like, well, that's really cool. Um, you know. I, I didn't push it on them. They're asking me, which is cool, and uh, the notoriety that Oregon Pinot worldwide is really showing is mm -hmm. something not to take lightly. So. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything oh. we didn't cover that we should have covered? No, I think uh, we did good. <laughs> talked a lot. <laughs> That's always the goal. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for your time, your hospitality here today, sharing your story with us. Uh, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.